100% the coolest show on climate change. Oh, we are so excited. Welcome to a live taping of Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Yes! Woo! We are here at Netroots Nation. For those who don't know, for our listening audience, Netroots Nation is the largest annual conference for progressives. Mm. And for you guys... Think 100%. Rev, tell them what Think 100% is. Man, first of all, just quick to be here. Man, y'all make some noise. I feel so good to hear that, man. Think 100% is that I heard TC also. TC had it down. He had the coolest <laughs> show on climate change all the way down. But this is a show here. Uh, Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change is a amazing award-winning podcast that is where young people will win y'all believe that young people will win yes and on this podcast we really do all the issue the solutions everything from climate resiliency climate adaptation but more important how we can broaden the climate movement because right now what we believe is that the climate movement as it is doesn't allow us to win so if we can broaden this movement and grow it, meaning that we have more people of color, black, white, brown, red, yellow, male, female, straight, gay, queer, the theist, atheist, human, that we can win this climate change movement. So that's what it's all about. Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hey, yes, yes. And you can find us at think100.info. That is our website. At Think 100 Show on Twitter and Instagram, and our podcast is on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. All of that. All of that. Yes, All indeed. of that. Yes. So, we would like to introduce our incredible guest. Our incredible guest is one of the youth plaintiffs in the landmark Juliana versus U.S. lawsuit. Yes. yes. Former fellow of the, for the Alliance for Climate Education, speaker at 2015 COP21 UN conference, Frontline campaigner, organizer, and so much more. He is the true definition of youth activism. So before we bring him on, though, yeah, yeah, you know, before we before we bring on Vic, let me let me let me actually let me do two things. First, um, man, I know this is a live taping, and I know if you're listening to the podcast, I'm going to date the podcast a little bit, but it's really important to me. Um, as many of you know, I'm from the amazing, great state of Louisiana. Uh, and being from Louisiana, having gone through Hurricane Katrina, which is now 14 years ago, I sit here today because family and friends are now dealing with flooding um, all throughout the French Quarter right now, as I'm talking, is, is underwater. Unbelievable. Um, and so, and there's, and Hurricane, possibly Hurricane Barry is barreling down to literally exceed some of the levels, um, in regards to Hurricane Katrina. I say that because, man, uh, when young folks, when we were dealing with that, it's for me, um, having gone through that, many of my comrades like Mama D, who are no longer here and many others are suffering. 
And so I wanted to bring that up because this issue is not a game to me. Um, uh, Antonique uh, is, a, is a survivor from Superstorm Sandy. Um, I've gone through with my family and friends through Hurricane Katrina. And so this is not a game. And it looks like this. It looks like people of color who are on the front lines. And so a lot of times our movement doesn't look like that sometimes. And so those of us who are left behind and left to fight and overcome the challenges of, of the climate crisis look like black, brown, red people, indigenous people who are left behind. And so this is the reason why we actually do this show. And so my heart is heavy, but I'm not so heavy because when I was looking out to you, I saw these amazing activists here today at Netroots Nation, the warriors of the progressive movement. So you make some noise. Hey. <laughs> yes. And so with that, one of the things is, you know, June will become the hottest June ever this past June. Um, France had degree weather of 115 degree Fahrenheit. Um, as I said, back in my, in my, in my homestead, Louisiana, right now, the French Quarter is underwater. In, New, in D.C., uh, there were flash floods. Um, you know, all around. And so this issue is serious. But one of the things that our movement does and where we get kind of get the kind of the, the thing, we kind of focus heavily on both demonstration and on legislation. That's kind of where our discussion kind of starts. It starts with the standpoint, okay, well, let's demonstrate, which is very important. I mean, you know, be in the streets is critical. But also then it goes to let's be in the suites. So let's do it legislation. And both of those are very, very important, how we shape policy, because we, we know either you shape policy or policy will definitely shape you. So we understand that dynamic in regards to what's important. But where our movement sometimes doesn't focus in, why we want to have this conversation today, was litigation. And we know that demonstration without litigation leads to frustration. And so litigation was so important for us to make sure we had this conversation. And sometimes as a progressive movement, as a climate movement, we don't really get into what litigation is. And sometimes when we try to parallel with the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement used litigation critically to move things forward. And so literally from Brown Board of really from the Dred Scott case, to be honest, but really they used litigation to really propel things. So it was People in the streets, folks pushing for legislation, and then also using litigation. But the reason litigation doesn't sometimes move to the forefront is because sometimes it can be kind of boring because you can miss it. It can start, and then it kind of goes to the background. So today's conversation, we want to make sure that we really get into it, that conversation. And with Vic, we have the ultimate, we have someone who's a person of color, who's queer, who's Latinx, who's also a young person, mm -hmm. to be on the stage, to deal with as a plaintiff, but to deal with this issue of litigation. So are y'all ready? for this conversation Woo! so listen when Vic comes out y'all need to make y'all need to get like hype up in here and make some noise y'all want to make some noise let's give an extremely warm welcome to our guest Vic Barrett what brought you to working on climate change yeah, um, when I was 14 years old, 
uh, I was, it was like 20 years ago, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, six, actually. <laughs> um, when I was 14 years old, I was a freshman in high school uh, in New York City. And I just moved from like a really rural, 98% white uh, community in upstate New York, where I spent like age zero to 13. And I was just like, I'm in this diverse city with a lot of opportunities and things to know and understand. And so I decided to join this after school program called the um, Human Rights Activist Project. And at first I was like, okay, human rights, social justice, those things are really connected and I care about them. So I'll go see what's up with that. Um, and I went and I remember in the first meeting they told us, so we're going to be focusing on a campaign that has to deal with climate change. And I remember being like, what does that have to do with what does that have to do with anything social justice? And I had failed all my science classes, so I was like, <laughs> let's see how this goes. Um, but I started learning about uh, environmental racism and about how environmental racism manifested in New York City and how during Hurricane Sandy, a lot of people that were on the front lines were low-income people of color because a lot of public housing in New York City is more likely to be built in areas susceptible to flooding. Mm. Um, and after learning that, I just remember feeling really frustrated because it was also at this time where the Black Lives Matter movement was taking off. Um, and I, I was seeing a lot of news about, you know, like black people being shot in the street by people who are supposed to be protecting us. And I put it into this context of looking at this big issue like climate change. It's, it's really similar. It's these people who are supposed to be protecting us are perpetuating a violence against us and using our own habitat, our own world to do that. Mm. And against black people and against people of color who've right. always been the biggest protectors of our world and of our natural resources. And the fact that these systems of power were turning our own planet against us was just something that I couldn't ignore. And it kind of just propelled me into doing all the work I'm doing today. Wow. That's amazing. No, that is amazing. Um, no, Vic, you kind of hit on something and kind of with your, your lens of looking back on climate change and just the hindsight of how that impacted. You kind of mentioned the connection, particularly with Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. for instance, and you're also you're from New York. Yeah. Um, and so it, it strikes me because this year actually will be the, the 50th anniversary of when we, we all witnessed um, Eric Garner being, being choked out, um, an illegal chokehold. Um, and in, and in, and in that, we know that while he was choked out by the police, we also know that within his community, he received an F for air quality. Mm -hmm. Um, because, um, you know, 68% of particular African Americans are within 30 miles of coal fired power plants. And so we know now as you're now connecting the dots, looking back on that from where you are now, and obviously, and we're going to get into the case a little bit, but, Looking back on how climate change affected you and your community, what is the, some things you think you either saw or missed in that process? Yeah, um, I think I saw a lot of just the day-to-day -day pain and struggle that people like my friends were dealing with. Um, and in ways that were really subliminal, but also like super obvious to me, mm. like facts that um, I had a lot of friends that lived in the far Rockaways and um, lived in areas that were really impacted by Hurricane Sandy. And they had to reroute their whole And for life. those who are listening who don't know what the Rockaways are, just tell them what that is. So they oh, yeah. So the far Rockaways are like out past Queens and just where uh, basically like the coast of New York City, I guess you can say. It's where all of us go and hang out in um, suspicious water <laughs> at the beaches. <laughs> um, if anyone here is from New York, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, a lot of my friends that were living in the Far Rockaway had to move as far as the Bronx to find housing that they can afford on a short notice. And it changed their day-to-day life every day. The trains they took after school that they had been doing for like years had all of a sudden become different. And just realizing that they couldn't be around a lot of their friends that they had known from their communities and the ways that changed for them was really impactful for me because it was just like... I don't know, we're so young, we're in high school, we're already going through all these transitions, all these things that are going on, and I'm also watching the ramifications of, like, teenagers being literally displaced from their homes and, like, having to reroute their whole lives because of this natural disaster that we didn't even perpetuate the issue that perpetuated that. Mm. <laughs> so true. Uh, and let me real quick follow up on that one, on that regard. So, because I just want to say, you grew up at a time when... BLM was really taking, was really kind of becoming a huge part of your social justice identity, mm-hmm. right? And and oh, I'm sorry for the climate <laughs> activists. Uh, I, I, it was BLM was Black Lives Matter, not Bureau of Land Management. Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> didn't want to throw for my folks in the room on that one. Like, no, he, how did how did Bureau of Land Management affect Dick? And when he was, when he was coming funny. up. I just wanted to clarify that, <laughs> make sure that was clear. But um, how, how does how did how do you now see? Because a lot of times people discuss in the climate movement like this is the threat, mm-hmm. and then and you're a climate activist, but then as a person of color, then we're like. No, we have we 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 have some threats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we have some big threats. Mm-hmm. So before you know, because we can't even leave our house, mm-hmm. if the three of us was left right now and said we would have left as a climate panel, they'd be, okay, yes, up against the wall. Um, um, that was a joke, y'all. Up against you know, the wall, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> folks of color, like, mm-hmm, no, ain't no, joke, ain't no joke in that. No joke in that. Right. But in that process, how would you? relate to that and how would you begin to break down those silos as you see them now between BLM, Black Lives Matter, and now also Bureau of Land, Bureau of Land Management and Black Lives Matter, but how would you <laughs> um, how would you break down those things now? I'm just hearing that that was a huge part of your identity because mm-hmm. you were like 14, yeah. right, when this is going on. So when you're seeing when you're seeing Michael Brown, you're seeing Eric Garner, you're seeing Sandra Bland, they're like 14, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. So how does that now affect you as a climate activist? Yeah, um, I think that it really highlighted for me and gave me this privilege of really understanding intersectionality as how it's supposed to stand and like what it means. Um, because these are these identities, like being black, intrinsically makes your experience with climate change different mm. than a white person, than to a white person, or even than to an indigenous person or to an Asian person. We're all experiencing climate change in different ways because of the different ways that we stand in our society. Um, and I think that realizing that was really important for me and then like tying it to Black Lives Matter and that connection was just like at the I saw how much emotional energy and emotional charge went into the Black Lives Matter movement because it, it we're looking at violence we're looking at people being shot in the street and mm-hmm. killed and murdered and I think that when I was able to take that same level of emotion and apply it also to the idea that people in Louisiana their homes can be flooded their lives are being lost 
people in the South Bronx have asthma rates that are incredibly high and their lifespan isn't going to be as high as other people's. It's another way of, you know, killing our community. Mm. And I think that really seeing that parallel of like whether it's somebody pulling out a gun and doing something that people think of as automatically violent, like shooting you or, you know, whether your government is literally just putting you in the line of dying because they care that little about your life. It was, it's the same thing. It's the same connection. And it became so clear to me and something I couldn't ignore because it's people that look like me who deal mm. with these things every mm. single day. Yeah, you preaching, Vic. Yes. Yes, that is so true. And I felt the same way. I, I, I felt like climate change and environmental justice is a Black Lives Matter issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I made that same, uh, probably around the same, well, 2014 it was when I uh, entered You were 14 then too? I was not 14 <laughs> Unfortunately so yes It's definitely impressive That you were so young and, and so wise To understand the issues That a lot of adults uh, are denying uh, That part So at 14 though, Let's get into the um, Let's get into this lawsuit <laughs> At 14 you got involved in the climate issues And just 6 years later At 20 years old You're still a baby You are suing the U.S. government. Please Come on tell now. Uh, yes. Come on yes. now. Oh, y'all could do better than that now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about the lawsuit. Yeah. So um, I got involved in the lawsuit in 2016, 15, 2015. So when I was 16 years old, um, I was doing a lot of activism in New York City with the Alliance for Climate Education and Global Kids and working on um, trying to get offshore wind in New York City and also trying to mandate climate education in New York City public schools K through 12. And I was really involved in these campaigns and doing a lot of work with them and I was speaking at press conferences and harassing city council members. Um, and finally, I, after working with the Alliance for Climate Education for a while, they connected me to Youth VGov or Our Children's Trust. Um, and I talked to some representatives from Our Children's Trust and they basically just explained to me um, that they take legal action in order to answer to the climate issue. And so I'm on the phone with them and they're like, all right, like, how does this sound to you? Basically, the premise is that we sue the U.S. federal government for denying your generation's rights to life, liberty, and property by actively perpetuating the global climate crisis through subsidizing fossil fuels. <laughs> So through subsidizing fossil fuels and just supporting an energy infrastructure that we know doesn't work. And also with tangible proof that we have that they've known since about the 1960s that climate change could be potentially catastrophic and then still took direct action to continue to mine fossil fuels and perpetuate the issue. Um, and at 16, I was like, that sounds dope. Like, yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> Especially like coming from the experience of being a youth activist and not having voting power, but having to deal with all these legislative people and knowing that I would go into their offices with my friends and we would like give, we would have talking points, we would have policy points, we would be totally prepared for these meetings at like 15, 16 years old. And the politicians would walk in not really knowing why we were even there, but being super excited to take a photo with us afterwards. Cause like you have a whole mm. bunch of like black and brown teenagers in your in your office. Um, and I think that after just having to like struggle so much with that, with being totally ignored by people because I didn't have the necessary power to vote for them, even though I was talking about an issue that disproportionately impacted my generation, was really frustrating and disheartening. 
Um, and just the aggressive stance of really like putting the facts about climate change in front of the people who are perpetuating this issue and forcing them to have to answer to them mm -hmm. sounded amazing and entertaining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, Vic, I just want to say this to you. Um, I, I want to hear about the other plaintiffs. Um, but I also just want to tell you this. I've met, we've met some of the other plaintiffs actually mm -hmm. on, on this show. Um, they, they've come on. Uh, Tessica and others, mm -hmm. um, uh, actually Kelsey, and, and, and I want you to talk more about that, but I actually want to give this a moment here and just tell you this, man, how proud I am of y'all. Yeah. Um, man. Yeah. It's super. Um, you know, it, it takes, I mean, it takes a lot. You know, you've put your name and, and, and all of you as children, something that we as adults should be doing, all of us should be suing this damn government, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, but um, I just wanted to tell you that because, and I also don't tell you just the real side, because I, I also know the other side of what, how, when you do those things, what they are. Because I know for me personally, you know, I, um, I was, I was, I don't look like it now, but I was an officer in the U.S. Air Force. And I actually spoke out against the war in Iraq. And my own government sued me as a conduct of becoming an officer and a threat to national security and was being court-martialed. I'm like, wow, my whole life was upturned. And so it was real fun with activists in the streets. Yeah, this is great. You know, me and we out there. And it was great. But then it was like afterwards, this government was coming mm -hmm. um, at me um, to put me in prison. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I just thank, you know, the Almighty that, you know, that justice is what's the side you need to be on. Yeah. And so I just want to tell you that regardless of whatever comes at you at the end of the day, you're on the right side of history. Yeah. Without a doubt. Thank you so much for that. No, definitely. So with that, talk about some of the other plaintiffs, because I know it's, it's 21 of y'all, 22? 21, yeah. So uh, there's 21 plaintiffs from all over the United States, ranging in age from 11 to 23. Um, yeah, and so basically all the plaintiffs in their own communities are either doing activism work and also have um, complaints that we filed in our declaration. So every single plaintiff has specific issues in their locale that contributes, um, that's based in climate change. So for example, we have um, Levi, who's our youngest plaintiff. He's 11 years old. He lives in Satellite Beach, Florida. Um, and he's homeschooled and he spends every day swimming at the beach and surfing and wow. climbing through the trees and finding shellfish and things like that. Um, but all so of that I needed that homeschool when I was homeschooled. <laughs> right, I right. didn't go to homeschool. But if there was ever a homeschool exactly. I was going to go to, it was going to be that homeschool. Yeah, no, I definitely feel that. And he has such a nice, like, consistent tan. It's great. Oh but, um, but, yeah, he lives in Satellite Beach, Florida, which is really susceptible to sea level rise. Um, and his community is totally at risk from sea level rise. And he's already had to move once um, wow. to a whole new community in his young age. Um, and it just impacts him on the day to day with the weather, with the, what, anytime there's a storm, his whole area floods. We have a plaintiff, Jaden, who lives in Rain, Louisiana. Um, when they had that huge flooding in, um, Baton Rouge, uh, two years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. Her whole house was flooded, um, mm. totally devastated, had to move. We have plaintiffs in Colorado that deal really terribly with asthma, um, forest fires, um, plaintiffs in Alaska. Um, Alaska just had a 90-degree day and this month. 
Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, just basically young people from all over the country with stories and impacts, um, but also voices that they. So really those who are listening, make sure you. You said you had it was a ninety degree weather night. Cause you kind of said Baton Rouge and went to Alaska. Make sure those who are listening, you didn't say ninety degree weather in Baton Rouge. Ninety degree weather in Alaska. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So. Um, Basically, all of these things are in our complaints. Also, we talk about, um, like, part of my complaint and some of the other plaintiffs' complaints is the psychological and developmental damage of climate change um, on our growth. Uh, and these are all part of, like, our declarations for the court and what gives us standing to see the government. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm taken back because I'm just thinking about my childhood, like, 11 years old, I was playing with Barbies and yeah. singing in church and things like that. And the courage, the amount of courage that it takes to take the kind of stance that you guys are taking from ages 11 to, you said, 22. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And Levi's been doing it for a quarter of his life now. Some of That's the plaintiffs have been doing it for, Levi's been amazing. doing it for a third of his life. Some of them have been doing it for a quarter of his, their lives. Mine's been for like a fifth of my life. Wow. We've been suing the That's government. That's incredible. part of it. It's crazy. So, how does it feel to sue the government? Now, hold on, like, Anthony, hold, Anthony, hold on, <laughs> you just went. Now nah, I'm gonna say you just you just killed everything with us right there. And there. You just went. So these young folks are here suing the government. You said, "Well, I was a guy was playing with Barbies." And you know, well, you can't. We got we got to be more radical I than that. Mean, you got to say Barbies would would fist us up. I mean, know? well, I did I did do a little revolt at my school because they didn't give us Martin Luther King Jr. Day okay, off. There you so go. I did. I got that overturned. So I was a little activist. Okay, okay, okay. I okay. spent the majority right, of my right, time right, playing with sure, Barbies. I wasn't suing nobody. So <laughs> <laughs> what the heck does that feel like? Like, like, what is that experience like? And mm-hmm. and uh, I know, I'm sure, uh, like I said, we have a whole group of uh, very ignorant adults who, who deny everything we're talking about. And I know there, and a lot of them are radical and, and sometimes, um, you know, AOC talks about her morning coffee is, is as she's drinking her morning coffee, she's looking at the people who have threatened to kill her and seeing their, their faces and making sure that her team knows who they are and all that kind of stuff. So this, world can get really crazy yeah and so just in general what the heck does it feel like to be 20 years old suing the u.s government yeah it's insane and surreal and like a lot goes into it whether it's like the traveling or the security um the talk (laughs) yeah security is a really big issue for us um talking to press all the time talking to media doing interviews it's definitely like changed how i've grown up and changed how i understand the world just because since i was 16 i've been having to periodically like do an interview on the phone when i want to be hanging out with my friends Mm. or like go on a trip to speak at some event when like i'd rather go on my school field trip or things like that so it's definitely had like a lot of interesting impacts and a lot of like this thought in my head where it's like why it's real I love doing the work but also you see youth activists all over this country sacrificing like big chunks of themselves to fix something that they haven't caused but feel so desperate to change that like they're willing to like give up those little pieces of themselves mm. um and well, I think hold on you got I think you just said it was very profound you got to break that down though what does that mean for somebody who at 16 starts 50 Really, at, at, well, as young as eleven in some cases, but now for you, who's still still young and at twenty, but break that down. What's that mean to now have to fix the problem of folks 
who are literally stealing your future. You're suing literally for your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You're suing simply to live. You're suing for clean air, clean water. What does that mean to you? So listen, y'all, you lived, we want to live. You gotta, right. you kinda said that. You gotta kinda break that one down a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 Exactly what you're saying. I mean, I think about, all the plaintiffs, I think about Levi, who we have 11 years, the IPPC, IPCC says, um, until we have irreversible catastrophic climate change. And in 11 years, Levi's going to be around my age. And I don't even know what that would look like for me. I mean, I know in 11 years, I'll be 31, and I don't even know what this earth is going to be like. Right. And it's really weighing, and it's like really this existential crisis that a lot of young people deal with all the time. But I think a lot of young people find a lot of energy in doing the work that we do and find yeah. and have a lot of motivation to do it. And it's really unifying for us, like, this struggle, but also, like, it feels good to know that we're doing what we can to push back against it, to know that we can say at the end of the day that we did everything for generations before us, even though generations behind us didn't do that for us. Come and I now. think that it's really like um, redeeming for our generation, if anything, to kind of try to change the tide of caring about posterity, caring about what's coming next. Mm. Mm. You, you know, you, you, you're breaking my heart. I mean, it's almost <laughs> it's crazy because it's almost, it's, it's just the standpoint of that literally... And I and I, I want to get into your personal story and that breakdown, but it's just a standpoint that man, and I, I don't. Just, I just want to say this: it doesn't matter if you are Democrat or Republican. This should be about humanity. Yes. Yeah. Human right? beings. And the fact that children children are suing for their future should be alarming. Yeah. yeah. On that aspect. Suing for basic human rights. Air, clean air and clean water. It doesn't get m more basic than that. So there are 21 plaintiffs in the Juliana versus U.S. case. All very diverse backgrounds. You yourself carry a number of identities. You're black, Afro-Indigenous, Latinx, queer, young, and first generation. How do your identities inform your climate activism? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, growing up, I realized pretty quickly that I was in a vulnerable spot, <laughs> um, being gay and being black and being Latinx. And also, like I said, growing up in a 98% white, rural, conservative community in upstate New York. Um, so, Big, you like this fight. You just, you just ready to fight anything. You, you, you like, well, listen. <laughs> I'm already just this. So I'm just going to fight regardless. <laughs> well, what's actually interesting is I feel like because I was in such an uncomfortable space, I realized that I would need to protect myself and like mm. adapt in a lot of ways. And I realized that the thing I needed most in my life was protection and mm. support. Um, and as I got older and got to move to New York City and found more more instances where I could have that support mm -hmm. and protection. I realized also how many people lack that every day still and what that does to a person. Um, and I think like going throughout my whole life, just knowing I'm so different, being in all these margins of society um, and still just trying to push through, like still having to do every day. You know, it's like you can't just stop doing it. You can't stop. But um, just being aware of that and knowing that people all over the world like me 
feel this way all the time mm. and are even feeling it in ways that I can't even imagine people all over the world that hold the same identities as me wouldn't be on this stage like getting to talk to people and have people care about what I'm saying right um and I think just trying to like open up any space that I possibly can a lot of my life like being black and Afro-Latinx and Afro-Indigenous um, and in a lot of spaces like the UN or uh, the World Economic Forum, just these spaces like filled by like rich white decision makers, it was never comfortable, but I knew I had to be there because I knew that the people actually suffering were people that looked like me. And if I wasn't on, there man. able to mm -hmm. talk about Come it. Come on, Vic, say that. <laughs> and if I wasn't there able to talk about it, then who would be? Um, and I think that a lot of holding those identities just gives me so many, much empathy for even people that maybe not don't necessarily have those identities, mm -hmm. but are still living on the margins of society, not even just in the United States, but around the world. I just think a lot about people in developing nations that are on the front lines of climate change that are thinking right now, like, where's my whole island nation going to go? And like, I feel like even if I haven't felt it on that scale, I can totally relate to that fear of just like being screwed because of what you were born as and where you exist and like not having any control over that. Mm. Mm. You so, are extraordinary. You, I just have to nah. say that. <laughs> oh so, my God. So, so, so Vic, uh, I, I want to make sure for this next, but I want to make sure pull your mic up close. <laughs> I want to make sure we, we, we're going to have some real, we, we having real tough. I, if, I want to get deep into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you mentioned something that's very important about where taking with who you are and going into different spaces because it's important to be in those spaces. So this is the thing. We on this panel right now are three people of color. Um, we have a climate movement um, that is challenged sometimes by being hmm, a Birkenstock movement. Is it like that? <laughs> That's a nice way of saying it, Rev. <laughs> a little Birkenstock, a little East Coast, West Coast. Um, and uh, this movement sometimes looks upon people of color, indigenous communities, um, sometimes more as the victims than as leaders. And even when you have, I don't know if you saw this, there's a report that came out a few years ago, and it had another report, it was a report that came out that was called Green 2.0. For all of us, who are, those who are listening right now, you should definitely go and check mm -hmm. that out. Green 2.0, a great report that came out that said that, you know, most of the top leadership within environmental organizations is white. Um, and, and it showed that it was, I mean, it was like mostly white, like, like 85% white. Mm. And then they had a second report that came out, Vic, uh, volume two that said that, uh, this is crazy. Too. It, 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 that, that it got whiter. <laughs> like, like, like they literally did, they didn't, some of them get, didn't get better. It went from 85% white to 95% white in some cases. Now, in cities like DC, New York, it's like, damn, you gotta work real hard to be that white. You know what I'm saying? You gotta, you gotta like go out your way. Good right. God. You gotta go out your way to That's be. That's hilarious. But it gets worse. Then they came out in June, which oh, was God. also the hottest June in ever we ever had in June. Um, they had a, the, the same kind of report that had what was called leaking talent. 
that said that even when there are people of color at these organizations, this is very sad. That it's such a toxic environment for people of color, black, red, and brown. That black and red and brown people literally would rather leave the movement that they want to fight for than stay within that kind of environment because it is so unhealthy for them to be in. That's out of control. Out of control. So what you just said here, I'm just wondering, based upon that, as you're looking on that, and this we're being real because one thing about the cool show, this show actually is very fortunate. We have a, a large this show. Primarily is those listening, actually your, your group, that's why you're here, Gen Z and millennials and people of color are one of the largest listeners to the coolest show on climate change and they're listening, but they also like you, just like, man, this is not, this is, this is not it. So particularly that one question of, you know, why do you think this movement continues to make those who are, and I say like this, why doesn't this movement try to find the Fannie Lou Hamers of the climate movement in a way in which they can find people who may be outside, that genius outside the academy. They may not put the, the nouns with the verbs and the verbs with the adjectives all together, but when they say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, mm-hmm. there's something that just rattles through your soul when they, the way they say it is so authentic. Why do you think this movement does not allow for those in that community, even after Standing Rock, even after all we've seen with pipeline fights, why do they still just marginalize people of color and refuse to put them in leadership positions? Yeah, it's, t- it's tough. I've worked with a lot of organizations um, in the amount of times I've been doing this. And yeah, you, it's, it permeates the culture of environmental activism. I and mean, even when I first started doing climate change work, like, a lot of my, it was really disappointing because a lot of my friends of color, a lot of my black friends were like, why would you be a climate activist? <laughs> like, with everything that's going on mm. in our community. And also, like, isn't that for white people? Like, that's where a lot of the attitude comes from. Mm. And I think that it to kind of ties back to the same thought I had initially when I joined into the movement where I was like, what does climate change have to do with social justice? And I think that because climate change is such an issue of science and is such an existential crisis that it's been intellectualized so much and like made into such an academic thing that's so inaccessible to the people that are actually struggling with it. And you see a lot of these nonprofit organizations that exist right now that are like really popular were founded by like, you know, like Ivy League white students who like had the education, also had the time and the resources to totally throw themselves into front lines or not to throw themselves into activism work. And um I think that it's it's still an issue with like breaking down that border, like still making people understand, even on like our side, like talking to other black people. A lot of the times I have to be like, no, but I promise it won't be that bad. But then I'm like, "Mm, am I setting you up for like, (laughs) I don't don't know. Um, And I think that, uh, yeah, it's it's a huge problem in environmental organizations. And I think that people are very blind to the fact that a lot of the resilience and a lot of the solutions exist in those communities of color and get really caught up in the savior complex. And like, you know, as a person of color, we all know like savior complexes have like fueled most of the like violence, colonialism, like imperialism of the of world history. And I think that a lot of white climate activists don't realize that that's what they're perpetuating when they try to take control. I think that a lot of times maybe they rationalize it to themselves of like, oh, well, I'm taking some weight off the shoulders of like all these people of color. But really it's like 
it's we're way past that weight has been on the shoulders for centuries and we've been able to carry it we figured it out we got it but like let us just tell you how to help us let Come us on. tell you mm -hmm. like what we need and yeah that's good Vic so we're all people of color and we all know people of color and, and, and poor communities are on the front lines. They are the ones suffering the most and, and it's most urgent. The climate change issue and the lack of environmental justice and climate justice is urgent. It's, it's, it's right here. It's urgent. People are dying. It's scary. It's crazy. So is that urgency overwhelming or is that urgency empowering? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think that, um, the feeling like the overwhelming feeling and the empower and like the empowerment kind of have to coexist in a lot of ways. I think that if there wasn't some um, if there wasn't some light at the end of the tunnel, if there wasn't something that was motivating all these people to do this, then all everything would be just stuck mm. in the like gloom and doom and like overwhelmingness of the issue. It's like the largest existential issue to ever like come across mankind. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that could be real weighty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so if there wasn't something there at the end of the day to make people feel good about it, no one would even do the work. And I think that the, that urgency really unifies a lot of people to want to do everything they can to answer to the issue. I think that we see a lot of examples right now, especially with young people um, doing this work for so long. Young people have never been engaged in the way they are now with like mm. knowing about climate change, caring about it, and wanting to make like the best protest sign poster <laughs> for it. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with just the true sense of urgency with all these studies coming out, all these things that are talking about like what has to happen in the next decade. A lot of young people are waking up and being like, oh, this is scary. Oh, you're scared too? Like, let's do something together about it. And I think that's what's been, that's really the empowering part of urgency. That's really what makes urgency able to motivate and activate people because it's like, well, we can't just sit around, can we? <laughs> right, right. We can't just sit around or there'll be no place to sit around. <laughs> uh, literally. Right, li literally. Like, yes, literally. No place, like, no earth. Well, the earth will be here. We won't be here. She's, I always say Mother Earth will be fine. She'll keep turning. She'll be doing her thing. We just won't be here, which sucks. Um, Got a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> so we have a clip in April of 2016. Before you get to that clip, okay. can I just do one quick, ask one follow-up to that, yeah, to that question? To of Vic? course. I actually want, I want, Vic, I need you, now you're, you're 20, right? Yeah. Kind of, you're kind of an OG. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, we, a lot of, a lot of the listeners to Think One Percent the Coolest Show on Climate Change are in Gen Z mm -hmm. and also millennials. Um, and you mentioned something about this, the mental anguish of this movement. I mean, this, the scope. And you think about that, the difference between even with the civil rights movement, which was primarily dealing with equality, is that the movement you're dealing with for climate justice is dealing with existence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want you just to speak for just a quick second um, to your peers, because if you're speaking to those who are fighting, um, who are like 16 and you were there, you know, just like four years ago, mm -hmm. um, but 16 and 15 and young people, um, I'm, I'm as a, as a person who's older and concerned that, man, 
to hear about from the IPCC report, um, Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, um, to hear that report and the story we have 11 years, there's something to your psyche, mm-hmm. right? So I guess just a little bit, just kind of just what, what, what kind of keeps you going? And then we'll get to that clip. Yeah. I think that um, it's often attributed to our generation, um, maybe particularly like Gen Z, younger millennials, uh, that we tend to be like hyperbolic um, and that our humor is dark. <laughs> um, but I think that <laughs> is really reflective of like the world that we've grown up in. Like we're, we have like all these like grand statements and do these grand things because we like have lived in a time where ridiculous things are happening. And I know that it's like, oh, ridiculous things have always been happening throughout human history. But we're talking about like catastrophic climate change and only 10 years to deal with that. We're talking about in the United States, like we saw the um, March for Our Lives movement take off because, you know, young people were just tired of the fact that they can get shot in their school, which is like a ridiculous thing for a young person to have to be tired of. But we see like all these like insane Mm. things that are manifesting in our lives and like, it kind of plays back to what you were saying before, like, but this is our reality. It's like, not like we've known something else. So like part of it, that's part of why we're like the best people to deal with it and most equipped to deal with it. Um, but also like that just speaks to like how desensitized we are to the fact that like our world is like falling apart in so many ways mm. and our society is falling apart in so many ways. And it's also like simultaneously just being handed to us by the nature of like how growing up works. Um, and I think that we're just really frustrated with the idea or the fact or like the notion that we have to like inherit this world, this like messed up world that we didn't really create, but have had to like grow up in. And we don't want to perpetuate the rest of, you know, all these things that we see going on. And I think that's a huge motivator and like a huge factor as to why like young people are really activated today to just like try to do something. And I think like speaking to young people particularly, I feel like the advice that I usually give to young people who are trying to get involved in activism is that I think that um, youth activism in this way, because it's taken off so much in our generation, has also become celebritized in a lot of ways. Um, And I feel like I try to, you know, tell other youth activists, like, you don't have to be in a now this video to be a good youth activist Mm. or like you don't have to have like a million followers yeah, Mm -hmm. followers on Twitter to be a good youth activist. You don't have to like be a social media expert to be a good youth activist because like that's not what we want to make activism. think that a lot of times my generation is like on the cusp of being like um, one of my friends calls it like clicktivists. Wow. You know, like you're retweeting something or signing a petition. So like that's your activism. Um, and I think that a lot of people get caught up in that because they think in order to be like an in the streets activist, you have to be the loudest person in the room and you have to be leading all the rallies. And a lot of my generation is just like not not that type of person. Um, and I think that I really try to just push the accessibility of it. Like there's so many. The reason that so many people can get involved in this movement is because, like, with any movement, any skills that you have, if you're a musician, like, if you're an, a, a visual artist, if you write poetry, if you like to build things, if you're an engineer, there's space for you in the movement to do something mm-hmm. to help somebody. Um, and I think that's usually what I try to push. Like, don't get caught up in the, like, the glamour. Man, that's <laughs> such an important, that's, that's real talk. Real, real That's, talk. That is real talk. And think not a video you would say. I'm sorry. No, I'm glad you did that. That was great. We <laughs> needed to hear that for sure. Um, so the clip. 
In 2016, Vic spoke to the United Nations, yes, 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 on climate change. And we're going to play just a piece of the speech. And in the clip, Vic refers to goals. He's talking about the UN Sustainable Development Goals for context as you're listening. Also for context, I'm 16 in this video. <laughs> I had a little glow up. We need a movement powered by young people like that invites us and engages us. We need to hear the stories of people and places being affected, and we need global, global leadership to work towards our long-term existence and not short-term gratification. In 2030, the year in which the global goals will be met, I'll be 31 years old. I may have a family, and I want to be able to tell my children that I did all that I could for them. Mm. That we did all that we could for them. We have been given the chance to change the course of human history. The global goals look past the things that we let divide us. They work towards the version of humanity that I know we can become. We have reached the moment in our history where we need to decide how much humanity means to us. How much do we mean to ourselves? In this, the Anthropocene, we must ensure that we are not characterized or held prisoner by our mistakes of the past, but that we are defined by our perseverance and bravery of the present. Join young people around the world in celebrating the best possible version of our future. Amazing. Come on. Amazing. Amazing. The UN has come out that we have now 11.5 years. And so, and let me be very clear, 11.5 years before we have, before we can't do what we need to do. So really moving into kind of adaptation fully, like we, although we can still make enough changes to, to somewhat reverse the climate crisis, um, not fully. We're actually, we, in some, many cases, we're, we too, we've gone too far along in that. But the situation now, um, is that, um, as we get ready, and we move forward, what is your message now? So you gave that message um, four years ago. What is your message now, particularly on the backdrop of the IPCC report? Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting looking at my transition from like engaging with spaces like the UN then to engaging with those spaces now. Um, because I definitely, I think I've gotten a little jaded in a way. Um, well, explain that. Uh, well, like when I first gave this speech, um, it was to the UN General Assembly and it was this really insane experience where like the invitation I got was asking if I was like a crown prince or princess or like a foreign minister and things like that. And I'm like, nope, just a kid. <laughs> um, and I remember that just being a really surreal experience, but also like to me it was, was like the most pivotal thing that I could do. And then also with going to, um, before that I had gone to COP21 um, where the Paris Agreement was um, drafted. And this was in conjunction with the signing of the Paris Agreement in New York City. Um, and I just remember like going to COP and having so much hope because I'm like, we're going to make an internationally binding agreement that finally brings all these countries together in the way that we need to, mm -hmm. to in order to make a difference. 
Um, and then I was on the ground there and I noticed a little, I noticed some things that were really like odd to me, just the fact that like civil society or the people who were actually being affected by any of the things that were going on in the room had to stand outside of it to protest and mm. had to like beg for attention basically. Um, and I had this really amazing experience going to um, Poland in December uh, for COP25. Uh, and I think the way that I engaged with this space was totally different than the way I would have three years ago, which is that instead of like focusing on where I could speak and who could hear me or who would be willing to hear me, uh, I was working with this amazing group of young people to plan direct actions to like force our voices to be heard. Um, and one of the big actions that we did with my friend Christy, who's right there, she was a delegate with me, <laughs> um, also works a lot on uh, social media about um, people of color. Uh, in the environmental movement, you should follow her, Brown Girl Green, on Instagram. Um, hey, hey. I like that. <laughs> yeah, but so we made this amazing plan that there was a U.S. panel that was at COP25, which was the only panel that the United States sent, and it was to talk about the future of fossil fuels um, and to talk about how fossil fuels were basically like a viable option for future energy mm. resources, um, which is obviously untrue. Right. <laughs> um, but it was the U.S. Department of Energy that was like holding this panel, and it was the only presence that the United States had at this international conference to talk wow. about climate change and how we were going to deal with it. So we decided that we were going to basically do a mass interruption and like flood the room with young activists. So we had like the whole center of the room, like probably sat like 300 people um, seated with youth activists. And then we basically just like midway into their panel just started laughing. Like everyone in the room like erupted <laughs> in laughter. Um, and so they all stopped talking. And then we basically just like took the mic. We went to the front. We had indigenous people talking, young people talking. I spoke and basically just like gave a whole spiel about like why what was going on was wrong and who they should actually be listening to. And then all left the room. So it basically left the room empty for this panel. That is so gangster. Um, I love that. I love Mic that. Mic drop. Oh my God. That's dope, y'all. That is dope. So that's something I probably wouldn't have thought to do like when I was 16. And I was just like excited to be allowed into the space. I felt like I was being given, mm. I was being graced with like being bought into the space. And then like the way that my actors are transformed, it's like now I just feel really determined to take that space. Come on. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was definitely like a really transformative experience between like engaging that way and then like working up to where I'm at now. So dope. I love that. Okay. So that's a little radical, which I, I appreciate that. I love that. Um, and so now we have an administration. I won't, I won't say too much about them, but they've, <laughs> you know, taken us out of the Paris Agreement and just to think climate change is a whole... But you got to say a lot about them, though. You know? Because... I don't like to the talk about No, because like if it. folks don't vote, they'll be around for another uh, four oh, more Lord, years. Oh, Jesus, don't vote for him, y'all. Please, so, if you are listening, do not do that again. You got to make sure make sure you vote. Yes, vote. Make sure you Please vote. vote. So, with that said, with the craziness we have going on, with the people running the country right now um, who who have said on, on record they believe climate change is a hoax, although he said he didn't say that. And then there's videos that he said it, and then you show him the video, and he's like, but I didn't say it, which is, okay, that's just crazy. Um, <laughs> how radical with the, with the the fight that we're in and and the urgency of the 11 years, which is not long at all, I mean, not long at all, um, and like Rev said, we already 
past the point of 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 going back like we like what's what we're going through right now all the craziness the storms like right now in louisiana like what you told us earlier is so sad that those people are about to go through the same thing they went through before hopefully we're praying that it won't be as bad um but how to fight that yeah how radical how radical do we need to be mm-hmm. to approach these leaders about climate change? Like, how do we push them? How radical do we need to be to push that? Yeah. And and in this, this is this one of your the, the last question. Make sure you also give any other information you want to give on top of that, like how to find you and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I would say, like, with how radical we have to be is extremely. <laughs> um, we're dealing with an issue that like I've said multiple times, it's coming fast, it's coming hard, and, like, it's huge. Um, And I think that there's a lot of ways that people think of the word radical and, Mm -hmm. like, what that means to them. I think to me that, like, one of the first things that a lot of people need to do is get it out of their head that... Or well, this might be a little controversial, but, but um, to really look at like the systemic issues and the people, because this this is an issue being fueled by people and not a whole bunch of people and not us either. Like right. people with like, you know, names and lives and existences that like walk the earth day to day are fueling this crisis. Like they, right. like, they're not mysterious. Like you find their names, you can find not a lot the boogeyman, of, like, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and I think that like looking at that as the issue and not thinking about and not letting people try to like guilt you or shame you into like, Oh, um, there's a plastic straw in your drink. Mm -hmm. Um, and things like that, because I think that's, that really, uh, that really puts a lot of the population, like turns a lot of them off. Mm -hmm. And it's often a lot of really inaccessible to like poor people and people Mm -hmm. of color. Like you can't tell a poor person living in a food desert in Harlem that like they now have to shop at the Whole Foods and be vegan. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. (laughs) Um, And I think that a lot of uh, what's also radical in the way that we could address this issue is by taking some of the power out of these leadership's positions, like basically turning away from them, turning away from begging them for everything that we want and turning in towards ourselves and like manifesting and really like uplifting the power that we have in our own communities and our ancestry and like the fight that a lot of these communities have been doing for a really long time, um, especially when it comes to communities of color just turning away from politicians that have never helped us and probably never. never will and turning into our community that has always helped us and it's always been what's pushed us to keep going and to actually make the changes that we want to see. Um, and I think that pol- like knowing that politicians aren't the answer to this issue is one of the most radical things that you can do to mm. answer to it, um, I would say. And then... How to contact me? Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 you said so much that we said before you give your content. Let me just again, um, on behalf of I think one percent, man, thank you so much. Thank you, Vic. Yes, uh, give, yeah, give it up you for you. You are extraordinary. I want you to. Um, definitely want you to give. For those who are listening, you know, how to reach you, you know, how to find out more about the case. Um, but I want to say this because Anthony made a great point, which is so true about, you know, got a vote and <clears throat> this administration. Let me get some water on this. Oh, uh, yeah. You got to drink some water on when you talk about this administration. <laughs> but I would also add this, Anthony. <clears throat> 
make sure I clear my throat, <laughs> is that I also hold Democrats accountable. Yes, absolutely. Because it's a shame that we're begging for a climate debate. It's a shame right. that we have to go forth to, to get a Green New Deal and everybody else. It's a shame, shame that they're not listening to young people. It's a shame that that's the case. So, say it. while I am fully understanding what this administration is and this threat to us, it is, I don't care anymore about if there's an R or a D. None of that is going to matter a hundred years from now. A hundred years from now, none of us will be here. But what will be here will be our activism. Mm. And if we had the courage to yes. stand up to anybody before us. And so it's not going to matter if they say this or that. What's going to matter is that a hundred years from now, this lawsuit that you're putting forth, fighting for these children and fighting for the next generation, Vic, that lawsuit, the same way like Brown v. Board of Education, the same way with Roe v. Wade, the same way that we can now have uh, marriage equality, the same way that that same way we're now fighting for us to have a livable planet, that lawsuit will allow for the next generation who won't even know us or see us or understand us, but they will benefit from that lawsuit. And for that, we as humans say thank you. Yes. 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 And on that, tell them how to find you. <laughs> um. Yes, that was definitely well-deserved. I'm glad we did that. Y'all made my ears all hot. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, should I stand? Like, nah, this is for you. You sit. Take that. Take that. You um, deserve it. Yeah. Uh, to find out more about the lawsuit, you could go on youthvgov.org and see the stories of all the other plaintiffs. Um, my Instagram is VicBarrett underscore. It's real easy. Um, my Twitter is Vict underscore Barrett. So there's a T after the Vic on that. I, I wish I wrote this down or something, but, um, <laughs> um, also, yeah, if any of you like want to talk to me more just one-on-one, -on -one, I'll just be here. <laughs> so that's also an option. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that's, those no. are the ways to contact me. No, thank you. Thank and you. how do you get us on Think 100? How do you yes, find us? Yes, at Think 100 Show on Twitter and Instagram. Our website is think100.info, and our podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, and Google. Google, what's it called? Google, Google Podcast? Is it Google Podcast? Probably. Google. <laughs> Google, Google us. Think 100 Show, the coolest show on climate change. Like what you heard? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit think100.info to learn more about the issues and donate to this project. Also, be sure to follow us at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Use hashtag Think100. Thanks again and all.